Welcome, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True and creator and co-host of the Inner MBA program. It's my delight to share with you this exclusive Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO podcast series. The series is built from interviews that Soren Gordhammer, co-host of the Inner MBA, and I have conducted over the past three years. The series features over 40 transformational CEOs from around the world, running a diverse range of companies, all with a shared mission, that business be a force of collective good. These conversations are rich and meaningful, open and candid about personal failures, discoveries under pressure, and breakthroughs. They feature leaders who have faced enormous workplace challenges and have emerged as inspiring wisdom figures, bringing a depth of real-world insight to our work together in the Inner MBA. I've gleaned so many practical ideas from these conversations, and I trust you will too. Thanks in advance for listening, and please let us know about your experience with the Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO Podcast Series. Hello, Inner MBA friends. Hello, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Great to be with you here on this Monday morning out here on the West Coast of the United States. And we're here with our CEO luminary to be featured, Natalie Fay, who's joining us from the UK and my co-host for this session, Emily Mogensen, who's joining us from Denmark. So wherever you're all joining us from, it's great for all of us to be together for this Inner MBA deep dive session. Let me tell you a little bit about Natalie Fay. Natalie Fay. She's an award-winning environmentalist, the founder and CEO of City to Sea, a UK-based organization that's running campaigns to stop plastic pollution at its source. Natalie's the author of the book, How to Save the World for Free. And also I learned a new book that's coming out next year and we'll be talking about this, Do Good, Get Paid. I thought in some ways that you could say, you could say do good, grow on the inside, get paid is a kind of an inner MBA mantra, if you will. So what a great fit that Natalie's here with us. And as I mentioned, I'm joined by Emily from Denmark, who's an inner MBA alum. She is our European region CEO liaison, and she focuses on mentoring people in the art of conscious co-creation. So here at the beginning, welcome, Natalie. Welcome, Emily. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. All right, Natalie, here at the start, as a way of letting our inner MBA participants learn a bit about you. You ready? You ready for this? You can find into 
the Zoom link I just sent you. Oh, you can hear a, a friend who plastics. A friend who uh, will need to be muted there. I think Melanie, maybe, or someone. Uh, on the, oh, there we go. Okay. Natalie, to let our inner MBA participants know about you, share a bit. You ready for this? Can you give us your life story in about five minutes leading up to the founding of City to Sea? Yeah, that's a great challenge. Life story in five minutes. Um, so lovely to be here and to spend some time with you all. Um, Gosh, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. Give me, give me like a one minute warning, Tammy, if you would, when I'm getting close to my five minutes. Um, I, so I would say, like, I dropped out of university. So I'm gonna start from that point, and I'm gonna give you the quick, the quick summary. I've had like a real coyote trail of a career. I dropped out of university. It didn't feel like it was the right thing for me to be doing at that time, and. I found myself in Ecuador um, after that, decided that I wanted to go and explore the world. And I also wanted to, I felt even back then actually, like um, I actually know what it was. After that, I started working in IT recruitment. So we're talking about the end of the nineties, the internet had just been invented. It was going like crazy. Um, and I got a job like temping and within about three years, so I was only about 21 at this stage, I had my own business. I was earning £60,000 a year, which, you know, back in the 90s for a 21-year-old was, was sure. quite significant. Um, and then quite quickly, but I also had a real, a strong spiritual path from the age of like sort of 18, 19. I had a really strong awakening Um in my first ever yoga class when I like with this amazing old woman in this tiny little village in rural England. Um, and so I was living this sort of high flying executive career, ticking all the boxes of what makes a successful kind of life in, you know, that stage. And I had this real like separation between my spiritual self who I'd come home at night and I'd read up about Hinduism and Buddhism and, um, and started sort of getting into music. And, and I just felt by the time I was about 22, that separation felt too great. I didn't know how to marry the two at the time. And I quit my job, I sold my house, and I I, I just basically went traveling and went to South America, um, decided to live with a shaman for a while and um, lived with some different indigenous tribes. And then I, I really felt like, okay, it's the, it's the inner work that I want to focus on. I came back to the UK, trained as a yoga teacher, started um, working in a, a sort of a, a yoga center, sort of ashram in the UK. And that, you know, until I was about 25, 26, felt like that was very much my path. And then um, I had my son. He came along as a bit of a surprise. So he's 19 now. And... And then I kind of, so then, yeah, was focused on, on being a single mother. I moved to Glastonbury in the UK, which for those of you that don't know, it's like the spiritual mecca of, of the UK. It's sort of also known as the heart chakra of the world. Um, and when I was there, I really discovered my love of writing. And I started writing articles for different magazines. And I started taking people on sort of sacred tour guides of Glastonbury. Um and at that point, I think I did that for about five years. I was a bit of a life coach, had this sort of bit of a portfolio 
career in, in Glastonbury. And, and then I really had this, like, you can look back and see those sort of key moments. I remember seeing this, I was about 33 and I was in Sydney visiting my brother in Australia. And I saw the, we, we drove past this school of film, television and theatre. And I just felt my heart like, like open and all these tears were flowing. And I was like, that's what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> I kind of felt this knowing that I was supposed to be performing or speaking or doing these kind of things. So I came back, retrained as a TV presenter, um, pretty quickly started working in television um, and um, and I wanted to sort of do more. But at that point, I was also aware of environmentally what was going on in the world. So I guess I wanted to take that um, passion I had for the environment and bring that to the screen. And so I started working as a TV presenter and getting more and more aware of how in TV they weren't taking environmental content. They didn't want to put environmental content on, on our screen sort of about seven years ago. And at that point I thought, okay, if they're not going to do it, I'll do environmental content myself. And it was around that time that I got aware of sort of plastic pollution and the problem with plastic pollution. And I really, Again, it was like that, a pivotal moment seeing a video from an American artist called Chris Jordan about the albatross chicks. And that for me was a catalyzing moment and can talk about that in more detail. But again, I, it's like a physical sense of that was, I knew I had to do something about that. Um, and I actually had a really interesting experience when I, when I started on that journey. Um, but sticking within the five minute time um, window. Um, I That's when I started City to See. So I, I just kind of felt like I could, we, I could make my own content. I could maybe run some campaigns, some petitions and use my skills as a communicator to create videos and content about environmental issues, specifically at that point around plastic. Um, and that's when it kind of grew from there. So seven years in city to sea has got around 20 staff um you were turning over around 1.2 million um and stopping hundreds of tons of plastic from getting into our oceans each year and yeah alongside that i've written a couple of books as well <laughs> uh thank you natalie and just to pick up a couple of threads i, can, I that i just can't help pull a little bit and tease out. The first one was you said that at 18 or 19 in a yoga class, you had something that you called a spiritual awakening. And, you know, I can't help myself. I'm just so interested in what those kinds of experiences are and how they change us. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, those are the juicy bits really, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, to me, they are. Yeah. And me too. Um, so, I mean, actually when I was about 11, I sort of fell upon uh, somebody introduced me to seances and it wasn't something that I enjoyed. I found the whole thing very scary, but at a very young age, it opened me up to this sense that there was another world. There was unseen. There were things going on in the world that I couldn't perceive with my ordinary eyes and ordinary consciousness. So I think from a very young age, I had that awareness and I guess I sensed nature 
energies in nature as well. But um, that particular moment, it was, I think, my first yoga class um, on on a commute home. And it was after the, it was in the sort of meditation stillness afterwards um, that I was just sat in stillness and I had one of those experiences where my sense of self dissolved and I became aware of this great twinkling, sparkling cosmos of which I was a part and this great love. And I guess it lasted probably as long as the meditation lasted. So, you know, five or 10 minutes. Um, and it gave me a, a, t- a taste, really, a sense of who I am and what I'm part of. And that was enough to keep me or bring me back in to to a life of spiritual discovery and um and and yeah holding that probably as one of my key values core core driving things in my life how would you say that experience still functions now and has functioned as a thread throughout your life how does it inform you i feel like maybe they've only been like a handful of moments like that in my life and in a way that I I interpret that as spirit sort of showing me what's possible but I guess on the day-to-day my practice feels very kind of unexciting and steady and you know it's not all kind of mind-blowing and cosmic it's it's very I think grounded and and slow going and I've tried many many shortcuts over the years and generally I don't think there are any um so so I guess I carry those experiences with me hopefully as I get older with a, a, a deepening awareness of spirit in my life um god whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um, no yeah yeah please please finish well no i was just going to say that yeah so I, I think those those moments are like sort of little pinpoints of light along otherwise a fairly kind of you know up and down struggling you know working through our stuff kind of thing Mm-hmm. Now, you also mentioned uh, moving to Glastonbury and Glastonbury being you referred to it as the heart chakra of the world. And I was like, what? There's a physical place that's considered the heart chakra of the world? I didn't know that. So tell me more about Glastonbury and, and how you experience that place. Sure. Well, Glastonbury is um, ha- has, I think, for hundreds of years sort of been a, a site of pilgrimage. There's a very interesting shaped uh hill it's definitely not a mountain but it's a a a very clear prominent hill and Somerset is very flat and it's very um wet and you know hundreds of years ago you would have just had this sort of island raising up out of the flats and it became known as the Isle of Avalon and it's a very strong power place um I don't know sort of how you might like to describe it but with other places around the world like Arunachala, um, certain mountains, certain lakes can act as um, energy centers within the earth. And Glastonbury has has long been called or famed for, for being one of those places. It also has, an, um, I think, the Michael and the Mary line run through Glastonbury, so certain ley lines. And 
Yeah, time immemorial, it's attracted um, a number of spiritual seekers and pilgrims and, and is a, also very beautiful. And at the bottom of the tour, you've got um, a, a white spring and a red spring. And it's quite unusual to have these, these um, water sources of a red and a white spring so closely next to each other. So you, there are some you know wonderful places like that it's also got Glastonbury Abbey and so there's a whole heap of energy there um for people that work with energy to power the work that they do in in the world mm -hmm. and then in terms of the origin of city to sea you mentioned seeing the albatross and we had some people write in the chat yes that really inspired me too and I noticed I I lost the thread here at this point. So I wonder if you can tell me more about the origin of City to Sea and how the vision for what you're doing now came into being. Yeah, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Chris Jordan. And I once, um, well, we got, we ended up in screening. But so, so initially he did the trailer for the film and it was called Midway. And, and he, he is an incredible connected, artist and he portrayed the plight of the Laysan albatross tricks so beautifully and I feel like he the way he photographed them the way he filmed them and then the music that he set that to it was like it was like an arrow it could slice through even the kind of most numb most disconnected person um and it was a real gift. And even just the trailer for the film, which he he, he shared in, um, I think this was like 2014, um, was enough to act as the catalyst for so many people. And I was just one of them who decided that we needed to do something. And I think it was, he made it so tangible and plastic is very tangible. And we can see, unlike some environmental issues, plastic is very bright. It's like a kind of calling card. You can't ignore it. And seeing it inside the bellies of these incredible magnificent creatures it was so undeniable and it was it was also very human it was like those are things that I use every day like what the hell are they doing inside those incredible creatures so that was the that was very much the motivating factor really and 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 I think what was useful about it was that I was at home when I first saw it so I was able to really feel the emotions because quite often if we're on a in a public place or you know, when we're scrolling through Facebook and we see these horrible images sometimes of something, we, it's kind of not appropriate or with our social conditioning, we wouldn't necessarily just break down and start sobbing or, but because I was on my own, I was able to feel the grief of that, uh, of that experience and feel that grief within a couple of hours turn into rage. It kind of changed in me and in my body and I became very angry about what was happening and then a few hours later that transitioned into action and, and I felt motivated and like this this forward movement of how can I respond um and weirdly I I landed on a song like I decided my first um attempt really or my my reaction my sort of response to what can I do was to 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 do a music video about plastic pollution, which sounds super cheesy, uh, but it was like following my heart, like what was my response to this? And I'd written a song, occasionally I write songs, and th the song wasn't about plastic pollution, but the video I thought could really work if it was about plastic pollution. So I did a crowdfunding campaign, 
I got some money together to make the music video and put it out into the world. And that was how City to Sea began. Mm -hmm. And Natalie, speak to us for a moment from the strategic part of you and help us understand those of us who, like you, have a response of grief and rage to the amount of plastics that are in the oceans and how it's affecting wildlife. What's your sort of strategic analysis, if you will, of what is going to solve this at the source? What's going to solve it? So there's a whole sort of ecosystem of like of change and it's it's not a sort of straightforward um it's not a straightforward process though so there there are a number of kind of levers that we have to pull to be able to transition away from single use plastic um one of them is sort of is legislation and it has to come there's a lot that has to happen at government level so that's where they introduce bans taxes, levies, and they take the responsibility off of the individual. And let's face it, the individual is often overwhelmed, overworked, time poor, potentially resource poor. It's it's hard for individual people, citizens, consumers to make all of these decisions about all of these things all the time. So putting the responsibility on government, and it's really things like um, deposit return schemes. So um, that's when you get money back. So I know in Denmark, you've got um, return systems that actually have been shown to reduce plastic pollution from bottles by 95%. But then we have the trouble with lobbyists. So there's there's corporate lobbying that goes on that prevents that legislation happening. So then there's a role of campaigners and legal activists to disrupt and bring awareness to the corporate lobbying that goes on that prevents the right kind of legislation from coming in. And then at the other end, well, in the middle, then you've got the retailers and the people that are producing and selling the plastic. So that, again, is another lever point where we can put pressure on our retailers to change how much plastic they're using. And then at the grassroots level, then it's where we have communities and individuals and who are basically starting to demand change and sign the petitions put pressure on their on their um on their government put pressure on the supermarkets start to vote with their wallet so actually start to focus on buying reusables and not using a single use coffee cup but always using a reusable not buying bottled water carrying bottled water so those kind of grassroots behavior change it may feel like a small action but what we've started to see now in the UK, like 45% of people are now carrying a reusable bottle. Um, and you're, we start to see that normalizing of behavior then starts to create trends and trends drive demand and demand drives investment as well. So it it's kind of a bottom up, top down. Um, but sadly, it's it's not quick. And that's that's frustrating we've seen some really big wins in the time that I've been campaigning for seven years but it's um yeah it's still a slow burn and what would in your view be the responsibility of businesses maybe a business that doesn't use plastics as part of their supply chain but what's their role in this whole strategic map in your view if they have one yeah so businesses 
generally so if they're not directly involved in in sort of a product line that has plastic in it um they can still sort of influence by having like a lot of companies now will have their like carbon footprint and they'll want to um, measure their carbon footprint and by including plastic within that we can start to see um you know having plastic reduction as part of company policies um not using single use as part of company policies and also promoting and championing the circular economy. So that's the other way that businesses, if even if they're not producing plastic, they can be part of the circular economy, which I won't assume everybody knows what I mean by that. But, you know, transitioning away from a, a linear economy where we, we make something out of something and then we use it for a time and then it becomes redundant when it's broken and it gets, you know, thrown away or put in landfill or whatever and so transitioning to a circular economy where everything that we build or use can be reused repurposed shared sort of uh, so that's how businesses as well can support that um and then yeah i guess sort of supporting i think businesses also can have a role in supporting the nonprofits and supporting the charity sector as well by having those corporate and charity partnerships mm -hmm. and you know, Natalie, you told us uh, the story of how you personally moved from grief to rage to action. And I think uh, people in the inner MBA, some people are in that place in between an emotional response to something that is heartbreaking and rage inducing. And they're looking at What's the action I can take specifically as a creator, as someone who is ready to roll up my sleeves and make an impact? And I know your new book coming out next year, Do Good, Get Paid, is kind of like a startup guide, if you will. And I wonder if you can share with us some of the principles you put into this startup guide. Thank you. Yeah, I I think I I, I really feel like for the sort of the long game and sustaining ourselves long term through what the you know, some of the changes we want to see in the world particularly if we're talking about um social and environmental sort of reparation might not happen in our lifetime so i think what's really important and what i focus initially on in the book is really finding the thing that lights you up and almost makes you know you, know, you feel so lit and alive that almost it doesn't quite feel like work because you're doing what you love and you're expressing that gift with the world. And that could be, you know, quiet behind the scenes kind of gift, or that might be more artistic or it might be um, more sort of direct. It might be more sort of on the systems change side, but I do think the first leaf for me is really taking some time to sort of feel into that and take some time to explore that if you haven't already of what are uh, your talents and what are the things that when you're doing you really feel like yeah I'm in my flow state right now um and for me that's kind of generally writing communicating so that's sort of what I I tried to major on but interestingly I've ended up back in the CEO role at City to See, and I can tell you a bit more about my journey coming out of that role and why I had to step back in. But that the CEO role doesn't actually play to my strengths. So it, 
I don't, I can't stay in that role for much longer myself. And it's, so it's an interesting, but it's my business. So I have had to step into that role for now. Um, but it's not what lights me up. So I think it's important, and, you know, and I can feel that I burn out much faster. I don't feel so motivated and, and burnout is a very kind of, you know, real um, experience, as I'm sure lots of you know. So I think the first thing really is just staying true to, to what lights you up and what you love. And even if you can't, you know, when we're starting our own thing, obviously you have to do quite a lot that you may be don't love um but I think some um I also talk about the value of coaching and mentoring and peer peer support as well in my book because you you know you won't have all the answers so having people around you that you can rely on and and usually if you're doing something purpose-driven you can create around you a circle of advisors and um, mentors who can support you and maybe have walked the path before you now, you've mentioned this interesting thing, starting and being the CEO, stepping out, stepping back in, but still wanting to step out. Uh, tell me more about that journey uh, for you. And why can't you be the CEO, but have someone else do the management functions so you can, you yeah. know, like, I think one of the challenges is redefining what it means to be the CEO. Yeah, definitely. And I think exactly it's that. Like, I think, um, so when I started city to see I didn't I didn't have a plan so I didn't have when you said I'll tell us about the strategic approach to plastics I was relieved that you said plastics because actually there was no strategic approach to city to see initially it was like okay the music video was a complete flop like I think I ended up raising about 17 pounds but I was I had all this momentum and thought well actually maybe I can do something more so I didn't I didn't have this um vision that I would then create this campaigning organization and then this would happen and then this would happen. And I've, I've always been, um, let's say vision strategy isn't, isn't my strong point. So and now I've got people around me that are better at that stuff than I am. And and now I've lost my train of thought. So you might have to remind yeah, me. Yeah, that's all right. It was it was trying to understand, and really, you know, this is a it's personal too that I'm asking this question about oh, yeah. Why the, someone creative and 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 magnetic and functioning as the leader of the organization, even if management isn't necessarily the thing that turns you on, and sort of how you're sorting that out, if you will. Yeah. So thank you. So um, yeah. So for the first three years, I was in that role and then I was experiencing sort of real high levels of burnout and there was somebody really fantastic in the organization who was who was young and it was it really felt like a great opportunity for her to step into the CEO role um, and for me to stay in founder role so I think what we enjoyed being able to do was having in fact we had two women leading the organization at that point and their um I've just dropped the name of that, but there's there's a book, and I'll try and remember the name of it by the end of this call, um, which is exactly about that, about having your integrator, so having your visionary and your integrator um, sort of leading the organization. And Rebecca was very much the integrator, and I was the visionary. And and people used to say to us, "Well, how can you have two people leading the organization?" It's like it's easy; it's not it's not a problem. Um, and so 
for me, so then she, Becky stepped in for two years. She decided she didn't like being CEO either. And then COVID hit and it was challenging financially. So when she stepped out, I decided to step back in. Um, so I'm just at, at the end two of that um, that two years. And we're now recruiting and hiring another CEO at the moment. And I will step back into founder role, which rightly or wrongly, I mean, the other option could have been to hire more of a, a COO, so an operations person. But I think with a smaller organization, um, we're not cash rich happy to talk more about our business model and what's worked and what hasn't but we because we're in a non-profit space we've never quite nailed our business model so we don't have a very like secure repeatable income which I would definitely recommend you all get that sussed <laughs> as much as possible save yourself a lot of stress um and uh and and so yeah so I think maybe if we were a bigger organization you could I could definitely have that CEO role but it'd be more visionary and creative um rather than it be the you know having to make big decisions all the time mm -hmm. now uh Natalie uh tell us a little bit about the fundraising that you do do working in the nonprofit and what's worked and what hasn't worked the get paid part of the do yeah. get paid <laughs> equation yeah, well, when I started, I, I quite quickly realized that trust grants and foundations and sort of philanthropic giving, but especially the, the, the grant writing um, was quite difficult. It was it was really sort of potluck and we were stuck. We were new, so we didn't have a track record. So we weren't very successful with grants initially. And I found it quite frustrating having you know, a fairly long time ago, but worked in a business environment where you you make partnerships and you you can be on the phone to people, you can connect on LinkedIn, yay or nay, let's have a phone call, let's take it from there. But with the grants and trusts, it was like, tell us what you want to do and then you won't hear from us for six months and then you might get a yes or a no and you won't get any feedback on whether, you know. And so I quite quickly then, I'd say majored on corporate partnerships so that was where we would align with particular companies. Um, so, for example, I when we did a campaign to stop cotton buds, um, also called Q-tips, if you're watching this in America um, and Canada, uh, to, to run a, a campaign to stop them from being made out of plastic and make them out of paper instead. And for me... I was like, okay, so who is this a problem for? Like, obviously they're polluting our rivers and seas and they're bad for wildlife, but where are they coming from and who's it a problem for? And it was coming from the water, you know, our sewage system. And I looked into it and it was costing the sewage industry a hundred million pounds a year to sort of deal with these sewage blockers. So I went to them and said, look, for 45,000 pounds, we'll run this campaign. We're going to try and get people to stop making cotton buds out of plastic and so I, I literally like found a meeting where all of them get together at a meeting. I I say in the book, I talk about wangling my way into meetings. I think sort of being a bit persuasive, being a bit cheeky, being a bit kind of like, you know, I won't take up much of your time. I just need to tell you about this or, you know, finding the right people. And I did find myself in front of a room of 
you know, very influential people who could make quite a quick decision. And I asked them for 45,000 pounds, which was only 5,000 pounds each, you know, and these are like billion dollar companies. It was a tiny amount. Um, and only three of them said yes. So I went away from that meeting basically with 15,000 um, pounds and ran the campaign on a real shoestring. And, and when I say that, like maybe two of us were paid two days a week. So it, it wasn't like give up your day job kind of thing. Um, uh, but we made it work. And then when that was a huge success, like within four months, we'd got all supermarkets to ban them. It was like a huge, quick win. And it was completely astonishing. And then I went back to the, com- the water companies months later and said, okay, so we've proved ourselves now. We, we've made that happen. Now will you give us some money because there's a whole other load of plastics that people are flushing down the toilet in their period pads, their tampons, all kinds of other things that have these hidden plastics in them. And I asked them for about £100,000 at that point and they gave us about seventy. So that was my, because, you know, actually being able to be in there and have conversations with those organisations so corporate partnerships was definitely one part of our of our funding and continues to be a big part of our funding now. And then product partnerships was the other one. So working with a bottle company, for example, we're running a campaign called Refill, which gets thousands of people taking out their bottle and refilling it for free from taps and fountains. And we didn't necessarily want to create a bottle ourselves so it made sense to partner with a bottle partner so for the past five years we've partnered with one in in um, the uk and europe and every time someone buys one of their blue refill bottles we get 10 pounds so that's funded us um you know usually around like 150k a year um sometimes 200k a year just from that um one partnership which has been really you know transformational for us and um, so product partnerships, corporate partnerships. And then sometimes we work with local authorities, so local government, helping them reduce their plastic or running behavior change campaigns with local government. So that's another funding stream, a bit of consultancy work. So it's quite a diverse portfolio and something. um, And then we're now focusing in more on grants and foundations because we've got a little bit of a track record. Um, I also think it depends on what's fundable like five years ago plastic was very fundable because it was kind of new (laughs) and uh uh so so funders kind of like being at the front of the curve like in the uk funders are really excited about rewilding at the moment and you know if you've if you're reintroducing beavers there's lots of money for that at the moment but you know plastic is sort of old news so it's it's harder to to show um you know to stay current but so generally, um, I'm just trying to think if there's any other major funding streams, individual gifts and donors. I've never really been great at the philanthropist thing. Like some charities run big gala dinners and they invite really famous people to them and they raise loads of money. I've never really, um, I've never really tried that. Uh, but, you know, I think um, we've we've gone with what we felt was was most um I guess, again, playing to my strengths and, you know, was within that corporate partnership space. Mm -hmm. Natalie, what I hear is persistence. 
boldness and creativity. That's what I hear in, in listening to you. In just a moment, I'm going to pass it over to Emily. And then Yuki, I see that you have your hand raised and we'll make sure that we bring your question or comment into the conversation. And if there are other inner MBA participants, if you have questions or comments you want to share, go ahead and hit the uh, hand raise function. It's under reactions and we'll call you into the conversation. I just have one uh, last question, Natalie, which is you mentioned that you were glad that I didn't ask you if there was an initial strategic map for a city <laughs> to see. And I think a lot of times people feel pressure. Like I have to have like, you know, I have to have a really clear business plan before I start doing this thing. Like I kind of have a sense of maybe one thing I could do, but that's not a clear plan. What would you say to the person who's struggling with that? With struggling with having a clear plan? Yeah, like they don't. They, they just kind of know they want to do this one thing, but they don't know what two, three, four, five years this is all going to look like. They maybe they, they don't have a, a real clear strategic plan, yeah, but there's I something think, they want to do. Yeah, and I think having a really clear plan can kill the magic and it can kill the flow. And it, it, I think it's, you know, I've learned that it's it's good to know because if you've got a clear plan and you know what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve it, then it helps you say no to things along the way. So I think, you know, and especially if funding is tight, it can be tempting to say yes to projects that might take you off course. And I've definitely been guilty of doing that at, at city to see But the joy of not having one of those plans is that it's absolutely been a, an adventure. Like I couldn't have predicted where we would have ended up or what would have happened. And um and so I think sort of, yeah, not having that has, I, I'd say there are pros and cons, you know, I think, I think it's sort of have one, but don't be, you know, nailed down by it. I think it's harder for me in the work environment and, and, you know, being completely transparent right now, I feel like there's another thing that's been calling me for a while and I haven't been following the yes in that Um and it may be that that morphs and comes in more into city to see, or it may be that I then transition and I I bring that more to the foreground. And and um, so it's not like I kind of always get the message. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, I get the message and then I I listen. But I think um, so. I feel it in I feel it in my body. So sort of that time when I had that up response to the media thing you know it was so clear it was such a clear sent, felt sense in my body that that either something was was misaligned or I was missing something I needed to listen to that like my heart really and and the same with the albatross it was a, a feeling um in my body and that that's what I needed to follow and and also recognizing my flow state of, of when I am happiest is when I'm writing a piece of writing or I'm composing a poem or I'm writing a song like that I am absolutely in my flow state and so I think recognizing that and thinking yeah actually I'd really love to transition more so that I'm actually getting paid for being in my flow state, I think is the ultimate, like working towards that. And that, that might like with city to see, I think maybe it's been a seven year 
cycle now and I think may you know I'm not sure it might there might be more yeah. there for me well um, I think your your response underscores how it's always a journey for all of us to there's always this continuing to tune in in the present and hear what's next what's next what's next and yeah how that that is our shared journey I also you know there are other tools like I work with um runes so like divination tools if i'm if i'm really stuck and i'm like what is going on right now or you know before a big meeting or if i need to, i mean obviously if i have a big decision to make then i will use my body energy awareness to 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 test to feel into which of those decisions i need to make um you know, I don't really talk about that publicly with my team necessarily, because it's like, what, you're going to decide who to hire based on what your energy says, you know, it's like, yep. <laughs> um, it's, you know, don't always get it right, do we? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please make sure to leave your comments on this interview here on the platform. And if there's a socially conscious CEO that you'd like us to interview as part of the Inner MBA, please let us know at innermba at soundstrue.com.